When I was about 14 years old, our family went on a vacation to Florida, and I had been preparing for a few months prior to that about going on this vacation to spend some money on something I was really passionate about, which at that time in my life was collecting basketball cards, especially of a certain player. And so I knew that we were going to go to this spot that there was going to be all sorts of different cards, and I was going to have an opportunity to really just get all of these different basketball cards. And so I'd saved my money up, and my dad had one of those five-gallon jugs, and he had filled it with change when he had been away working, and he brought that back to my sister and I and said, if you guys uh, count all the change, you can split it right down the middle and use that money for vacation. So not only did I get to use money that I already saved up, but I got to use the money that my dad had been socking away in this jug. So my sister and I poured all the change out. We separated it, counted it. I had all my money. And honestly, it was more money than I had ever had in my life up until that point in my possession. I had a little blue Velcro wallet and I put all of my cash in that wallet, and I was so excited to head out on the road to go on vacation and get to that spot to where I could buy all those basketball cards. And somewhere along the way, legend has it, it's perhaps Monroe, Louisiana, maybe, I think is where it happened. We stopped at a rest stop, and I lost my wallet. And here I was, all my dreams were shattered. I was so upset, we searched, we looked in the car, we got down the road and we just, you know, I was so upset. Oh, I just felt that just awful pain in my stomach. And, and, and it was just so miserable thinking all of those dreams of having all those cards were now just slipped through my hands. This was my chance. And man, I was really bummed about it. And my dad showed probably what was one of the most gracious acts that I've ever seen um, an experience, especially in my younger life, that he didn't get on to me. He didn't make me feel bad. I never remember him wagging his finger at me and telling me about how I should have been more responsible. I didn't get the responsibility lecture. I didn't get the, well, there goes your vacation, you know, and can't believe you lost all that money. Dad didn't wag his finger. He didn't give me that speech. He didn't make me feel bad at all. Matter of fact, Dad reached in his wallet and he gave me the same amount of money that I had already saved up, and he allowed me to have more money. Now, when I think about that, it blows me away that he was willing to do that for me because it wasn't my dad's fault. My dad didn't lose the money. I lost the money. Um, I was irresponsible with that amount of cash, and he could have said, see, I told you, shouldn't have let him have that much money um, in a wallet. We should have put that away. There was none of that conversation that was directed towards me. He just opens his wallet up, and gives me the same amount of money in cash. And it blew me away because as I revisited that scenario from that vacation when I was younger, it made me think about the grace of God. Because grace is not really getting what you deserve. Instead, it's getting something else. It's getting something that you didn't deserve. Instead of getting something you'd earned, instead of getting the punishment that was due you, which in that instance would have been, well, too bad you lost it. You should have been more responsible. That would have been just, and he wouldn't have been wrong for that decision. But Grace said, you did something wrong. You were irresponsible, but I'm still going to give you something. I'm still going to bless you regardless of the fact that you're the one who blew it. And that's very much like what Christ has done for us. And we're going to talk about true grace this morning. And I love this statement by Jonathan Edwards. He said this, the only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. You see, we don't deserve God's grace. We don't 
deserve God's forgiveness, His love, or His blessing. And we forget this truth when things get difficult, when things get tough. And we develop this sort of why me attitude. And this why me attitude really comes from this false belief that we have that we think we didn't deserve the challenge or the difficulty that we're facing. And what it shows about our heart is that we don't truly understand true grace. We don't really understand it because when difficulties come our way or challenges come our way and we think, why me? We're starting off with the wrong idea about ourselves. We're starting off with the wrong idea that I don't deserve this because I'm good. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that throughout the years I've had many conversations with people who are not Christians, and one of the things that keeps coming up when I have those conversations with people who are not yet Christians is they'll say things like, you know, I'm a pretty good person, and I don't need that religion, or I don't need to go to church, or, you know, me and God are cool because I'm a pretty good person. So they equate Christianity with just morality and, you know, being a good citizen. They think that's what Christianity is about, and they're missing the point because there's going to be people on the day of judgment who thought they were doing right things, and Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are. Scripture says there's going to be many on that day that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do A, B, C, and D in your name? And he's like, yeah, I don't know you. So there's something there that we need to understand about the grace of God when it comes to what we deserve. Because I don't deserve His love, His forgiveness, His grace. He gives it to me freely. It is a gift. Just like when you give someone a gift at Christmas time or for their birthday, and you just say, here, I want to give this to you. You're excited to give the gift to them. And you don't expect them to pay you back. If you expect them to pay you back, it's not a gift. You have removed that ability for that thing you, give, you gave them to be a gift. Now it's become something they have to repay you for, something they've had to earn. And that, my friend, is called a wage something that you earn, something that you work for. It's not like you get the new bike and then dad's like, all right, now you got to pay me back for that. So shovel snow and get out there and, you know, do A, B, and C. That's not a gift. That's you trying to pay back with your own effort, with your own works. And that's not how grace operates. Grace is you getting what you did not deserve when you did something wrong and he still gives you something anyways because it's not because of you. It's not something you earned. It's not something you were able to uh, bring upon yourself by your good behavior or your good efforts. It's something that solely rests upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. That's why He is supreme. The Scripture uses this word. He's preeminent. That means He's above all. He's before all. There's no one greater. There's no one higher. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's why there's no other name in which we can be saved other than Jesus Christ, because there's no one greater not you, not me. You see, every other religion in the world operates off of a merit-based system. Christianity doesn't operate off of a merit-based system. You see, every other religion in the world would tell you that you've done wrong, sure. I mean, we can all acknowledge that, but then they want to present you with the solution to your wrongdoing being tried to offset that by doing more good than you've done bad. And you're playing this sort of karma-based system where you're trying to tip the scales of justice in your favor. Yeah, I admit I've done wrong. I know I've done wrong. But now I need to do a bunch of good to offset the wrong I've done. And my friend, can I tell you, that's not how it works with Christ. It's not based on you. As a matter of fact, our works, our good deeds, our righteousness, if that's the way we think brings us before God and makes us right in the eyes of God, that's called works. And the Bible says our righteousness or that type of approach 
It's like filthy rags. God's not impressed. God doesn't go, oh, wow, you've been a good little boy or a good little girl, and it's like I'm making a list and checking it twice, and I'm going to find out who's naughty or nice. And we think that's how God operates, and it's not. It's not you get the money because you saved up for it and because you were able to be responsible with it. No, it's you were irresponsible, you lost it, you messed it up, and then dad pulls out his wallet and says, I'm still going to bless you anyways. You go, that doesn't make sense. You're right, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to you and I because what do we want? We want our brand of justice. Our brand of justice says, you've done something wrong, I want you to, I want to do wrong back to you. You hurt me, I want to hurt you. An eye for an eye. You, 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 you hurt me, I want to I see you fail or see you struggle. That's not what grace does. Grace says, even though we've spat in the face of Christ, even though we've rejected him, even though we've rebelled against him, the Bible says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The Bible says, before we knew Jesus, we were considered enemies of God. That's a pretty weighty statement. Enemies of God. But now, one who was once called an enemy of God could be called a son or a daughter of God? How does that happen? It's certainly not by anything you or I've done. It's only through what Jesus, the spotless lamb, the sinless one, the one who is perfect, God in the flesh himself came and bore our sin upon his body, took all of the sin and all the consequence and all of the junk because God is just and God is holy and he can't let sin go unpunished. So instead of that getting delved out to you and me, it was for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now I receive that by faith. I receive that by trusting in him and going what Jesus did was sufficient. I want to receive that grace. And Peter talks about this to the church in Asia Minor. We've been going through 1 Peter verse by verse. So open up your Bible today and we're going to wrap up going through 1 Peter verse by verse by going through chapter 5. And as Peter is concluding his letter, he's writing to the persecuted Christians, the persecuted churches, and he names them in the beginning in chapter 1. And he's writing to them to encourage them, and he's wanting them to understand true grace. Because for us to understand true grace, it's one thing for us to receive it, but if we're going to live in a world that wants to put pressure on us as Christ followers, we not only have to be good receivers of grace, we have to be good givers of grace. Amen? Because we freely have received, so we have to freely give. And so if I've received grace, man, I need to be a dispenser of grace. But for me to be an accurate representative of Christ to dispense that grace, I've got to learn what true grace is. And I've got to receive it the way it's intended to be received so I can give it in a way that's going to point people to Jesus and not to me. Amen? So 1 Peter chapter 5, remember Peter's writing to the persecuted church, and here's what he says to them in this section of his letter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." 
Peter acknowledges something here in the beginning of chapter 5. He's exhorting the elders among you as a fellow elder. So what's Peter saying here? He's saying, I recognize I'm an elder. What was an elder? It was someone who was a shepherd. They were like a shepherd pastor of the flock of God. And that's what Jesus was telling Peter to do when he told him to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs. And so this is Peter saying, I too am an elder. So he was not only an apostle, he was not only a disciple of Jesus, he was an elder, and he's speaking to the church leadership, the elders. And he's saying, you who are charged with eldership, with leadership in the church, he said, man, I, I get it. I want you to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, and so I want you to live a certain way before the people that you're called to serve and lead, and I want you to do this by exercising oversight, not under some sort of compulsion to where you're like, oh, I've got to do this, but where you're joyfully and willingly serving them, but not because you're trying to gain something from it, not so you're trying to puff your chest out and, and you're trying to get some kind of gain from having a title or because you're a certain age or because you're of a certain leadership qualification or you have a certain responsibility. He said, don't lead that way. He said, it's not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering. Don't be a dictator over those who are in your charge. But what does he tell them to do? Be examples to the flock. He's telling the church leadership, you guys are charged with being examples to the flock. He said, because you are representing Christ. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And then in verse 4, he says, and when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he's saying, do this as unto the Lord. Just like Paul said in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. He said, you're doing this as unto the Lord when you're serving these folks, not because they think you're up on some pedestal. Verse 5, and then he flips it. He's now not just addressing the elders, now he's addressing everyone else, and he's saying likewise, or in the same way that I just got through talking about the elders, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves all of you, that means elders and those who are serving with the elders, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He's talking about being clothed with humility here. This is something that we put on. When, it, when Scripture talks about clothing yourself with something, it means that I need to recognize that I need to position myself to be clothed with humility. It's not just something I'm going to wake up with. It's something I have to consciously think about and go, you know what? I want to be someone who is living with true humility in the way I treat other people, the way I serve other people, the way that I lead if I'm in leadership, or the way that I work with leaders if I'm a person in the church that, 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 that has not had that leadership gift. Either way, I want to serve. I want to be, make sure that I'm living peaceably with all, and I'm living in a way that's honoring God with everything that I set my hand to, and that I'm receiving grace and that I'm giving grace, and that I'm modeling that. And so he speaks to those people in this instance because he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And every one of us are to clothe ourselves with humility because we never stop needing the true grace of Jesus Christ. We never stop needing the true grace of Jesus Christ. It's not like all of a sudden you arrive because you're an elder. Woohoo! Yay! You're in church leadership. You're a pastor. Or you're on the elder board. Uh, you don't need Jesus anymore. Nope, you still need Jesus. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years, if you've been through confirmation, baptized every way you can be baptized. I don't care. 
I don't care what gifts you have. I don't care how many people you've spoken in front of, prayed for, how much money you've given. I don't care how, how, how often you listen to teaching or how often you may teach the Scriptures. It doesn't matter. You never stop needing Jesus. It's not like you get to a place and Jesus says, well, I brought you here. Good luck from here on out, buddy. Let me know how it goes. No, you still need Jesus more and more. And you can do whatever you want to with this because this isn't in the Bible. This is just Derek. But I still want to share it because I think that there's some merit to it. This idea of humility, this is my personal definition of humility. I had someone ask me a few months back how I would define humility. And my response was this and would still be this, that humility is being aware of your own limitations. I think that's how we humble ourselves is that I realize my own weaknesses, my own flaws, my own limitations, because I am finite. I serve an infinite God, and I serve a God of the impossible, but Derek, he's got limits. Derek has flaws. Derek has imperfections. And so I humble myself by recognizing I still need Jesus. It's not like I only need Jesus when things in my life are going bad. No, I need Him when things are going great and when they're not going so great. Amen? And it's not like I get to a place where I stop needing Jesus either. And humility is recognizing I still have need. Because what is pride? Pride saying, I don't need that. The foolish man says in his heart, there's no God. I don't need him. The foolish person would say, oh, I'm a good person on my own. And then here's what the enemy would want to deceive us to think. He would want to deceive us to think that we are good because we're not as bad as, you know, those people. And you know who I'm talking about, right? Those people. You know, the neighbor that you can hear them yelling at each other. At least we don't do that. You know, the person in your family that you can look at and you know kind of all of their history and their past, and at least you haven't done those things. And you're, 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 the, you're, you're the golden child. You're the perfect one. Or you're the person at work who always shows up on time. And that other person, you know, they're just not as good as you. That's all pride. Every bit of that. Every bit of that type of thinking is pride. God opposes it, but we think that we're earning merit badges in God's Boy Scout and Girl Scout Club, and He's pinning them on us and going, hey, look at you, look what you did. Man, I'm glad I got you on my team. As if God needs us or wanted us to be on His team because we were special. No, the only thing good in me, the only thing special in me is Christ. That's my hope. That's my salvation. It's not like God's going, man, I really need that one on the team because they sing really good, and I want people to sing good to me. And then when someone who sings well gets saved, God's like, yes, it's going to be so much better. God's not impressed with your gifts. Why? Because He gave you the gifts. They're really from Him, and they're to Him. It's not about you. You're the vessel. It's not about the vessel. Does the, does the pot say to the one who made it, hey, why did you make me this way? No, it's he made us. He formed us before we were ever even a, a twinkle in our parents' eyes. Before we were formed in our mother's womb, He, he knew us. Amen? And, and, and how arrogant of us is it to think that we're helping God out, or that somehow we have something to offer Him that He's need, in need of. Oh, God just needs you. No, God doesn't need you. But He wants you. He invites you in. But you need Him. And we don't understand needs sometimes. That's tough for us sometimes, especially in America, because we don't really understand need. It may be easier for someone who is in a situation where they've lived 
a much more difficult life where they understand need a little bit more because I say things like, I need a nap. <laughs> I need some pizza. That's what I need. I need, I need, man, I need a raise. I need a new car. We say these things and we don't understand need. And then you hear a pastor or a preacher or a teacher say, you need Jesus. And you're like, yeah, I know. And we think we know it, but we don't know it. We're missing it out because we always look for something deeper or more. And when we hear the simple things, like you never stop needing the true grace of Jesus Christ, we go, yeah, I know that. And that's pride. Pride would say, yeah, I know that. I've got that already. No, you don't. It's the same idea when you see someone on television that is interviewing an elderly couple that's been married for 60 years or something like that. Have you ever seen one of those interviews done where they'll have this, uh, this old couple that's been married for a long time and they're celebrating like a really big milestone of, of marriage? And what does the interviewer always ask this couple that's been married for 60 plus years? Well, same question. What do they ask them? You know what it is. What's the secret? And it's the same question that people will come to pastors with. Hey, what's the secret? It's the same thing we do when we open the Bible. What's the secret? And what does that little old couple always say? He's holding her hand. They put the microphone in front of me. He says, it's holding her hand, going for a walk, and telling her I love her, and making sure that we don't go to bed mad, and giving her a kiss every day, and telling her how pretty she looks. And then, the, you know, we're all watching this going, that's cute, but really, what's the secret? And if you were to sit down and ask that couple, they would say, holding her hand, not going to bed angry, telling her I love her every day, telling her she's pretty, and vice versa, you know. And we would go, no, what's the secret? Because we're always looking for something more. Because that's not satisfactory to us, because we're like, I've tried that, I understand that. Obviously, we don't, because that couple's been married for 60 plus years, and they've made it. And we need to listen, because it doesn't have to be something deep and profound. When I first started out preaching, I was about 15, 16 years old when I started preaching the Bible, and I used to feel this pressure early on in ministry to have to find something no one had ever heard before to make the people I preached to go, ooh, ooh, wow, he's deep. What does that even mean? He used a Greek word, he's deep, that he probably mispronounced because I'm not Greek. And we want to search for something deep, the deep mysteries of God. And so I would go to some obscure story that no one had really given a lot of attention to because you couldn't go to like David and Goliath or Noah and the ark. That's like children's church stuff. I had to, you know, this is big church stuff now. So I got to like, you know, really look. So I'd go through the book of Chronicles or go through, you know, uh, first or second Kings and find some really odd story that didn't get a lot of publicity. And I would talk about that and people go, I've never heard that in the Bible before. Wow. Pastor Derek, He found the secret. That was amazing. And then you hear things like, you never stop needing Jesus. And you're like, yeah, I know that. No, you don't. It's not in those deep, mind-blowing things. It's actually in the simplicity of the gospel. Because the longer you walk with Christ and the longer that you pursue knowing him more and more, the sweeter he should become to you. It shouldn't be. I've heard, the, I've heard the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. I've heard the story that he's coming back. I've heard about his miracles. No, it should be, wow. The more I hear the story of the gospel, the sweeter that it gets because it's becoming more real to me.
It's becoming something that I thought I knew, but man, wow, I know him and love him more now today than I did when I first met him. It should be a growing of love, a growing of affection, a growing of a deepening of a desire to serve him, please him, and to know him. Not, I've got the cross. I, I, I got that part. I, I've heard this before, Pastor. John 3.16, I know it. And we say it so arrogant and so cocky, and we miss that elderly couple, the simple things. We miss the simplicity of the gospel, and we never stop needing the true grace of Jesus Christ. Because grace is you getting what you did not deserve. What do we deserve? Romans 6 and 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. The wages of sin. And I have sinned because guess what? Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, you, me, none of us are exempt from that. All of us. And I'm not better than you because I'm a pastor. God doesn't go, oh, he gets brownie points. He gets gold star by his name. God's not impressed. God doesn't go, yay, we got Derek on the team now. No. It's for the wages of sin is death. I, I deserve death for my sin. It was my sin that put him on the cross. The only thing I contributed to my salvation <laughs> is the sin that made his death necessary. But he did it willingly, not begrudgingly. He was like that silent lamb led to the slaughter for you, for me. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that he took upon himself was for us. By his stripes were healed. What does that word healed mean in Isaiah 53? It means made whole. He's made us whole by what he's done, by taking our place. That's the free gift. You receive that grace, you receiving that grace, is contingent upon you admitting your inability to fix you and your inability to fix others. Uh-oh, I was cool when you said I couldn't fix me, but now others? Yeah, that's right. You can't fix other people either. I know you want to. That's manipulation. That's control. And you got to let that go. Grace requires that you let that go. I want to change people. I've got a list. I've got, some of you might be on it. No, <laughs> I laugh, no, but no, seriously. Uh, <laughs> we want to we, we change other people. We want things about us to change. But folks, can I tell you, you can't. That's not your job. What is your job? To plant seeds and to water seeds. To plant seeds and to water seeds. To receive grace and to give grace. That's your job, to speak truth in love and to show grace. Sometimes you confront sin. Sometimes you overlook sin. Sometimes you, 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 sometimes you, you, you walk with someone for a really long time. Sometimes you've got to pray for them from a distance. It's all grace. It's all loving people where they're at. That's what we're to do, plant and water. And God brings the increase. God's the one who changes the stony heart, as Ezekiel said, to a soft heart of flesh. Not you. Not Dr. Phil. Not the latest best-selling book. Amen? Not the conference. It's Jesus Christ. Those things can be helpful, but only the power of Jesus Christ can truly change your life. We have to acknowledge that. 
That's what humility is. Clothing yourself with humility is acknowledging, I need you, Jesus. And humility is something we clothe ourselves with daily. Here's the bottom line. Hashtag this on social media. Take pictures of it. Share it. Type it out. Our WOG bottom line is this today. It takes humility to receive true grace. It takes humility to receive true grace. Because it takes me admitting I need him. It takes me admitting I always need him. It takes me stopping and going, you know what, Jesus? I've been relying on myself. Forgive me for that. I realize I need you in this moment. I need you this day. I, I try to do that, and I'd be lying if I said I did it every time, so I won't say that. But I try to remember to do this every time before I come out and speak and share the Word of God. I always say, Holy Spirit, I need you to fill me today, to stir me up, and to help me to share your words and let your words be heard by your people. A dear friend of mine um, by the name of Al used to pray with me every Sunday here at Word of Grace before he passed away, he'd always grab my hand and Al would always pray that prayer over me. And so I remember Al's words and I, always, I can hear his voice when I pray that prayer. Lord, let me be filled with your words. Let your words be heard by your people. In other words, it's not about me. It's about him, amen? It's greater is he who is in me than he that's in the world. Not greater is Derek who's in Derek because Derek's great and Jesus is lucky to have Derek. No, it's greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I have to clothe myself with that humility and confess my need. I need you to fill me with your words. I need you to let your words be heard by your people. It's not because I've crafted some winner sermon that's going to you know, be famous. No, that's, that's not why. Because it, it's not with cunning words of man, but it's rather in the power of the Holy Spirit and demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit where all of you can be sitting in here or watching online and you can hear a message, but the Holy Spirit speaking to every individual heart. Derek's not that sharp to come up with all that. I don't have your house bugged, I promise. That's the Holy Spirit that's working in you. And we have to position our heart with humility to receive true grace. Let's keep on reading. He keeps talking about humility. Verse 6, let's read the rest of the chapter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Here we see a scripture that we've probably used a lot lately in the middle of coronavirus and in the middle of a, a very divisive and tense election cycle where we have asked uh, the Lord to help us with our anxieties. And maybe you've even used this scripture and you've pulled it out and you've said, Lord, I want to cast all my cares upon you because you care for me. 
that's a great and comforting text, and there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord to bring you comfort and peace through that text and through uh, quoting that scripture and saying, Lord, I just want to cast all my cares on you today. But he's not just talking about casting the cares uh, of this life onto God uh, in, in the sense of that's all he's talking about, because if you look at the context, if you look at the whole thought, he's actually talking about humility here, because he encaps it with humility. It's not like Peter's writing this letter as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, and he's having random thoughts, and he's writing little proverbial statements, and all of a sudden he makes this little fortune cookie, you know, statement of cast all your cares on the Lord, and then he, you know, types it on the tiny typewriter and pulls it out, folds it up, puts it in the fortune cookie, maybe? No? Okay, all right. It worked in the first service. Uh, <clears throat> And then he, t- okay, no, I'm, I'm all leave it alone. All right, it didn't work out. So, <laughs> so <laughs> but that did. So I'll take it. I'll take whatever I can get. He says here to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. And then the next thing he says is interesting. Look at this context. This is a flow. That's what I want you to catch here. This is not little cookie-cutter statements. This is not a, a, a proverb, just little axioms of the day. This is a single flowing thought. Humble yourselves. Remember, he was talking about humility in the leadership before and clothing yourselves with humility. And now he's talking about how to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in other words, God knows better than me. God knows more than I know. And, and Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the proper time, he may exalt you. And then casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. What's the opposite of sober? Help me out here. Huh? You laugh like you don't know. It's drunk. <laughs> I know what it is. I won't say it in church. It's drunk. <laughs> The opposite of sober is drunk. What does a drunk person do? Stupid stuff. Right? Why does a drunk person do stupid stuff? Because they're not really in control of what's happening, but they think they are. Right? They think they're in control of themselves, and they think that what they're saying is really profound and wise and makes a lot of sense, and it really doesn't, and everyone's looking, and they're like, you need to go home. I'll call you an Uber because you're talking crazy talk. Why? They're not in control of their thoughts. They're not in control of their their perception. They're not perceiving things correctly. And they think they're really wise. They think they're really smart. They think they're in control, but really everyone else can see, ooh, you're you're not, but you but you think you are. That's what Peter is saying that it's like to be someone who is not humble they're drunk on themselves. They're drunk in pride because they're not being sober-minded. They're not humbling themselves and positioning their heart and their mind in a way that's honoring to God. No, they think they know what needs to happen, and they think their perception is correct, but they haven't humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. They think they can just control it. They think, I've got this, right? And they're getting drunk on their pride. He says, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is, pro- is prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's looking for somebody like this. He's looking for somebody who's getting really upset over something minuscule that happened at work, and who's going to take it to Facebook and social media and, and blast their neighbor who's, who's got a Trump sign or a Biden sign in their yard. He's looking for that person. 
because they're offended, they're angry. And he's prowling around and he's looking, who's, who's going to be that person who's going to give in and who's going to make a big deal out of something that's actually going to hurt their Christian witness? And he wants to take advantage of that situation and stoke that fire. One of the best ways to stoke that fire of offense is to get a crowd around someone who's offended. You want to stoke the fire of offense? Go get you a crew who can be offended with you. Oh, buddy. And there are certain topics and certain issues in our world where those things are like dry kindling and it will just light up like the 4th of July. You bring up certain hot button issues, all of a sudden you got a crowd, a crowd who's supporting you. And if you think you can be louder than the crowd who's against you, then you think you win and you think you're right. When really, are you representing Christ well? Are you representing Christ well in those instances just because you got a crowd? Is that how it works? Is that what we saw Jesus do? Was it, was it the crowd being right? Is that the, the, the thermometer, the gauge, the measurement Jesus used? No, because remember, Jesus was like performing miracles a week prior to him being crucified. And then when he stood before the very people he had prayed for, the very people who he had healed, and when Pilate says, do you want me to release this murderer, horrible person, Barabbas, or do you want me to re release this Jesus Christ who's done nothing? And they said, give us Barabbas. The majority made a mistake <laughs> because the majority would rather have had this evil person rather than Christ. The majority's not always right. So just because you get a loud group of people shouting doesn't always mean they're shouting the right thing. Amen. Hello, somebody. That's another sermon for another day. I'm going to write that one down. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's looking for somebody who's drunk on pride. And when you read, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, in the context, he's talking about pride because anxiety and worry are a result of pride. I don't like that. I don't want to hear that. That's not fair. That's not very nice. I know. I didn't write it, though. That's in the Word of God. You see here that he's talking about pride. He's talking about humility. And he's talking about the sin of anxiety and worry. Why? Where does anxiety and worry come from? It comes from pride because I'm trying to control it. I'm trying to make it all work out. I'm drunk. I'm not making good decisions. I'm drunk on pride. I'm drunk on myself. I'm drunk on my will over his will instead of submitting. The answer is clothing myself with humility and submitting. That means, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. That means, Lord, I may be going through a challenge right now, but I want to resist the devil by clothing myself in humility, by standing firm in my faith, regardless of what pressures may come upon me, regardless of the challenges that may come my way. People may persecute me because of my faith in Christ. People may reject me because of my faith in Christ. My faith in Christ may make things more difficult for me in certain instances, in certain areas of life. But instead of me flip-flopping, going back and forth, instead of me trying to, 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 to be louder than those who would oppose me, I'm going to instead resist the temptation to do that by clothing myself in humility and just serving. Serving one another, serving with those elders, serving with those who have gone further down the road than me, serving with my brothers and sisters in Christ, because what does he say here? Let's look at this again. He said in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, check this out, look at this, verse 9, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What is Peter trying to say here? 
You're not the only one. Isn't that one of the biggest tricks of the enemy? He tries to get you to believe you're the only one going through what you're going through. Or you're the only one who sees clearly. Everyone else is an idiot. Either way, he makes you feel like you're the only one. He'll make you feel like you're the smartest person in the room or the most oppressed and defeated and downtrodden person in the room. Either way, he wants to isolate you. And either way, it's really pride. Either way, it's still pride and it causes anxiety. And Peter says the answer is clothing yourself in humility under the mighty hand of God. So when it's the right time, he'll actually exalt you. You cast all your anxieties. You're sober-minded. You're resisting the devil. And you remember, one of the ways to resist the devil and stand firm in your faith is remembering, I'm not alone. There are other brothers and sisters in the world who are also struggling. There are also other people who are being challenged in their faith. There are other people who have difficult family situations. There's other people who are, who are, are having a more difficult time at work because of their faith in Christ. There are other people who are living around you. You may not know their names, but you're not alone. He's saying, know that the same kinds of suffering, what you're experiencing is not unique. It's being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he said, and then after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Here's the promise. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because he's the one in charge. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Greater is he who's in you than he that's in the world. All dominion goes to him. So he himself is going to confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This world is not your home, church. Some people experience different life here on this earth than what maybe perhaps you and I know. But when we live in this world, regardless of whether things go our way or whether they don't, we can't get caught up in this why me thinking. We're not the only one suffering for the cause of Christ because we live in a fallen world. The Apostle Paul wrote it like this in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17. Could you pull that up? He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Nothing compares. This He calls whatever you're going through right now, whatever you may be dealing with, I don't know what you're dealing with, but whatever you're dealing with right now, let's just talk about stuff we're all dealing with. We're all dealing with COVID. You know, we're all having, it's affecting us in one way or another. We're all dealing with the financial challenges. We're all dealing with uh, the, the pressures of this election, and we're all dealing with uh, all, all of the things that have been happening in our world that have been affecting and impacting us from a social justice standpoint. We're all thinking about and dealing with these things in different ways, and we all may be suffering in different ways or may be challenged in different ways, but it's all light and it's all momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing us. It's preparing us if we will deepen our dependence on Him. It is preparing us for an eternal weight. If we'll humble ourselves, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Uh, Paul also writes this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, something very similar. Romans 8 and 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Like, it's not even worth comparing 
Like, we're not going to be in heaven going, man, I had a rough time on earth. Oh, man, that was hard. Let me tell you about, oh, yeah, well, you think that was tough. And then we start one-upping each other in heaven about how tough we had it. He says, we're not even going to care. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. That's why Jesus himself said to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where thief doesn't steal, where moth doesn't corrupt, where rust doesn't corrode and destroy. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do I do that? By humbling myself under the mighty hand of God, by seeking first the kingdom of God, by prioritizing Christ over everyone and everything because he's worth it. He's overall. Amen? So no more why me type of thinking. We have to be sober-minded, not drunk on the way that we think and not distorted in the way that we think because his grace is sufficient. In other words, church, Jesus is enough. It's the simplicity. It's the simplicity of the message of the gospel. It's the simplicity of the message of humbling myself, clothing myself with humility, recognizing my limits, recognizing my inability to save myself recognizing that the only good thing in me is Jesus Christ, and he has made me new. It is truly all about Jesus, and his grace is sufficient. The challenges we experience in this life are brief and are for a moment, but sometimes God intervenes and alleviates our suffering in this world, and sometimes people die or suffer for the cause of Christ because there are people, I've heard stories of people who, man, they gave their life for Jesus. And I've read those stories about people who have been martyred. They died full of faith, in their faith for Jesus Christ, for his name, and they would not turn to the right or the left. And then I've heard stories of people that God miraculously delivered them out of a hopeless situation. And I praise God for both of those situations and those stories. So whether I, whether I go down the path of Maybe it's meant for me to, 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 to be delivered out of those situations. There were times where God rescued the Apostle Paul. He was lowered down in a basket, like over the side of a wall. Sometimes the prison doors flung open, but ultimately he died as a martyr. It, Peter, was. there were times where he was delivered from it. There were times where he escaped it, but then ultimately, by his own choosing, he, through church history, says he died on the cross upside down by his own request because he didn't count himself worthy to die in the same manner of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So whether things go easy for me or whether they're difficult, whichever path I, I experience, uh, I want to trust in him and know that he is enough. And know that he's good because when I have humbled myself under the mighty hand of God and I've acknowledged my need and I've acknowledged my limitations, you know what it positions my heart and my mind to be able to do? To rest. Couldn't you use a little bit more rest in our current culture? Couldn't you use a little bit more peace in our current day that we live in? Where does that peace come from? It's not like magical fairy dust that falls from the sky. The peace comes from knowing Jesus and knowing I am righteous in the eyes of God, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I am secure because of his sacrifice, because of his love. And I trust in that, and I, and I rest in that. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to work hard to deserve it. I don't have to pay my dad back <laughs> because, I, because I messed up, and I want to make it up to him. No. It's out of his love that he showed true grace. 
And it's because of that grace as I receive that grace, as I receive that peace that passes my understanding, that guards my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus, I'm now able to freely receive. I'm able to freely give that. I can share hope with others. I'm now positioned to be that ambassador for Christ where I can share that truth with others, where I can confidently say, do you know Jesus? Because there's no peace that's going to come from God until you have peace with God. And peace with God only comes from knowing Him. And it comes from humbling myself and reminding myself it's all because of you, Jesus. So i got to take my hands off of this deal. i got to stop trying to change those friends, those family members, that spouse, that boss, those employees, those neighbors. i got to stop trying to change people. My son, my daughter, maybe for some of you, grandchildren. You've got to stop trying to change people. You, you, you've got to start resting and trusting in the grace of God. You speak the truth in love, yes. You set the example, yes, but you humble yourself and you clothe yourself and you receive that grace and you give that grace and you live out the gospel. And the way you treat people will point their hearts to Jesus, but it takes humility to get there because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble takes humility to receive true grace. I want to see us receive true grace and give true grace. I want word of grace to be a church that truly is a place that understands the grace of God and is growing in it. Not that we've arrived. Not that we're better than another church. (laughs) Not that we've got the secret truth. But rather, we're growing. I want to be growing. Amen? I want to be growing. And so my prayer is that you would be growing today. So Lord, help us do that. We humble ourselves before you today. And we just want to keep growing in knowing you more. We want to keep growing and understanding how beautiful and wonderful and amazing that you are. We want to keep growing and understanding the gospel and letting the gospel become precious to us, more precious to us than anything else we might experience or talk about, that the gospel would truly be good news to those of us who are being saved, that we are growing in Christ-likeness and godliness, that we are growing in being that salt and light in the world, not because of us, but because of you in us and how we see your beauty, how we see your love, how we've been experiencing your grace and your mercy as your mercies are new every morning. Lord, may we rise up and honor you every single day. Let us be sober-minded. Let us rest and trust that you are enough. And if there's someone here or online today that doesn't know you, may they find peace with God through trusting in Christ as their Savior. May today be the day of their salvation. May today be a day where They're no longer an enemy of God, but they can truly be called a son or a daughter of God by the saving grace, by the saving power of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, draw people to yourself. Draw them, point them to Jesus Christ as their hope. And may they call on the name of the Lord and be saved today. Jesus, we need you. We never stop needing you.